The first half of the 20th century was a particularly violent time in world history. Right? I mean, we, we know this from just from World War I, World War II, Korean War, but we also know this from all of the, of the tyrants that existed. Most of them were socialists and communists. And while I'm not gonna to touch upon that today, uh, for all of those uh, people who seem to be enthralled with socialism, you might find out why socialism always needs communism and why that always leads to millions of people dying. Instead, I'd like to look at one who is not a communist, but is the most notorious despotic ruler of the 20th century, Adolf Hitler. Following on the heels of World War I, uh, Germany was in a bad, bad, bad state of affairs. Uh, the economy was, was broken, and there was sort of a national, um, oh, what shall we say, there was, you know, the, the self-image of, of Germans had taken a tremendous hit. They were a very proud nation, contributed much to mu music and philosophy and history, etc. And so when this man came along uh, promising to, you know, sort of restore the greatness of Germany, uh, many people, many people fell into line. They thought, this is great. The economy started coming back. They thought, this is wonderful. But then they invaded Poland. Then World War II began. And we know, of course, about all about that. And we know particularly, though, about, the, about Adolf Hitler and how he uh, was responsible for the deaths of some six million innocent Jews. And if you include all of the other people killed through the final solution, um, perhaps upwards of 11 million people. What's tragically interesting about this is how so many of the people went along with it. Now, they, they claim, though, they didn't know about the gas chambers and the ovens and what was happening in their own backyard, as it were, in their own countryside. And so at the end of the war, because so many Germans just did not believe that happened, the Allied forces marched them through the concentration camps to show them, to show them this is in fact what happened and you, perhaps unwittingly, uh, supported it. You supported it. As they began to uh, try the, you know, through trial, they, they began the Nuremberg trials. They, they began to try all of the, the Nazis who had contributed to these, the deaths of these people. And remember, there was a perspective of Hitler that, that the Jews were less than human. They were less than human, so they didn't deserve to live. They didn't have rights, and that became the law of the land. And so um, most, of, most of law followed what, what would be considered legal positivism. In other words, if it's legal, it must be true and good. But they got to the Nuremberg trials and they thought, well, how do we try these people that were following the law and following orders? 
And they had to revert to what's called natural law. And part of natural law is that the human person has an inherent dignity and inherent rights. And so they tried the, the Nazi leaders based on that. They had to bring that back into law, which it had been largely vacated because of secularism. There's a particular, uh, particularly a good example of, of this dynamic. Uh, years later, they caught Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann was the architect of sort of the final solution, making sure all the trains ran on time, making sure that, that people were killed as efficiently as possible. And so they caught him and they brought him to Jerusalem. Hannah Arendt uh, details this in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And as, as he was interviewed, do you think he did anything wrong? He said, well, no, I was following orders. What I did was virtuous because I was just following the law. I was following the orders that I was given. He was convinced of his virtue. It was legal and he was obedient. Adolf Eichmann was, I believe, hanged, and rightfully so. Might have been shot. Either way, the end result was the same. He lost. So Adolf Hitler, 6 million, 8 million, 11 million. You know, you get into those numbers, and it's just so hard. To, it's, it's hard to be exact. And we look at him as just the worst, worst one of the worst criminals in history. Not just because of the number, because, you know, many people say Stalin probably killed more of his people. More people died in the communism of China. But nonetheless, we look at him as, as, as kind of the, the paragon of what is evil. And rightfully so. 11 million. Would we see him worse if it was 25 million? Would we see him worse if it were 35 million, 45 million? According to the Guttmacher Institute, since 1973, 55 million unborn children have been aborted in America alone. The Guttmacher Institute is no friend to pro-lifers. They're a completely secular pro-abortion research group. Since 1973, 55 million innocent children have been killed in the United States at the hands of physicians and at the consent of their mother and sometimes father. We look at somebody like Hitler and we say how horrible he is. And we look at those Germans and we say how dumb they were to just go along with it. And we look at those Nazis and we say how stupid that was to just merely obey the law and think they were doing something virtuous. But we won't look at ourselves and our own country and the shame and the horror we should feel. It's worse. Since 1990, according to estimates by the Guttmacher, and World, Guttmacher Institute and World Health Organization, worldwide, 
1.5 billion children have been aborted. One point, just since 1990. 1.5 billion. And why is this done? What is the ideology behind it? Most of the ideology behind this is abortion and the protection of abortion is necessary for women to be free. Part of your liberation, women, so these people say, is born on the deaths of billions of unborn children. And without that, you could not have your freedom, for you must be liberated, they say, from your biology. The possibility of being a mother is a burden to your freedom. And we see more and more women actually uh, publicly talking about how wonderful it was that they had an abortion because it allowed them the economic interests they wanted or the career advancement that they wanted. Billions of children so that women can be liberated from the constraints of how God created them. There's no doubt that women are equal to men. There should be no doubt. And every husband here better say that. <laughs> There's no doubt. And, and that equality needs to be protected. Absolutely. And shame on men for not protecting women. Absolutely. But securing one's freedom can never be done through intrinsically evil actions. Other means have to be found. Or there's something profoundly wrong with how that freedom is secured. If it has to be secured, it's no different you know, through the, the killing of innocent victims. It's no different than Nazism. It's no different. I, it's different in the details, but it's not different in the ideology. It's not different in the justification. Now, one of the problems we have is that the secularists have persuaded so many of us about this, about this concept of the separation of church and state that they've persuaded us about a misinterpretation of the Constitution. And they say that, you know, you Catholics especially, because the secularists hate Catholicism, because we stand for things that they oppose, of course, and they want to eliminate. And they tell Catholics and, and conservative Christians, they, they tell them, you cannot bring your religion into politics. There has to be the separation of church and state. Do you remember the framers of the Constitution largely came from England, Spain, France, but, you know, mostly England. But, I mean, the early, earliest Americans were from those countries. And in those countries, and the framers of the Constitution knew this, the experience was that the government would impose religion on its citizens. 
And so when it came to writing the First Amendment, the First Amendment does not start with the freedom of speech. It starts with the freedom of religion. Congress shall pass no law with respect to the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. The Constitution does not protect the state from religion and from religious people. The Constitution protects religion from the state. The Constitution protects the free exercise of its citizens to engage political, the political process with their deeply held beliefs, no matter what they are, whether they be Catholic or Protestant or even if they be atheist. The Constitution protects people to be able to choose their representatives based upon what they sincerely believe. And so there ought to be no divorce between the way that we view our relationship with God and how we seek to bring about a just and good society. And if we choose to do that through Christian principles, there's absolutely nothing inconsistent or contrary to the Constitution. I mean, just, just look at Declaration of Independence. Children, do you still memorize this? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, namely the right to, we know this, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. They are created equal. They're not born equal. They're created equal, which means our founding fathers believed in a creator. They are endowed by their creator, God. Now, they had different understandings of God, but they, they had a transcendent view of where our rights come from. The state does not secure our rights, or it doesn't create our rights, I should say. The state protects the rights we've already been given. This is the brilliance of the American Constitution and also, of course, the Declaration of Independence, that the state doesn't give us rights or create them. God gives them. And the state understands its authority is given from God, and therefore the state needs to protect its citizens and the rights given, namely life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we've been told to keep our Catholicism on the shelf when we vote. We've been told that that can be bifurcated and ought to be excised from our public life. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. No doubt our duty to the state is to be good citizens. No doubt is our duty is to participate in the political exercise of the state. But to give to God a godless society is not what he wants. To give to God a society that has killed 55 million innocent lives and declared them non-human is not what God wants. 
And the more that we see that we will stand before God one day and have to answer for what did we do or not do? Well, you know, abortion is legal. It doesn't make it just and it doesn't make it right. Even if it's never made illegal, that doesn't mean that it should ever be adverted to. And I wonder if even people who thought it was a good idea ever thought that we would be speaking of billions of children dying. The casualties are far, far too much and too great. You know, politicians want to stay in power. You know that. Even more than they like to get wealthy because they're politicians. They want to keep their job. Some of you are Democrats, some of you are Republicans, some of you are independent. What would happen if all of us, all of us as Catholics, and, and even by extension other Christians, if all of us demanded of our leaders that they be pro-life? What would happen if we voted that way? No matter the party, they would have to change. And the reason they'd have to change is because we have a representative government. And if they knew they couldn't win through their godlessness and through their policies, they would have to change. Imagine if the Catholic Church ever woke up and realized, and not just on, on the issues of abortion, that we could actually demand from our leaders that they support pro-life causes and that they, they defend the lives of the innocent. But all of the other issues, we could change the entire country if we wanted to. The country's a mess. It's just a mess. And as a priest, my goal is not to put me in between you and your political decisions, but to help form your conscience. I don't know what I can do out there. I mean, I voted, but, you know, it's just one vote. But I do know what we can do in here. I, knew, I do know what we can do to change our culture or to just better our culture here. So I've thought of some ideas. The first one is this. Unplanned pregnancies just happen. They happen in every family. But in this community, in this family, no woman no girl should ever feel condemned or judged if she is pregnant, no matter how that came about. And we may not even know. Every woman who is pregnant, every young woman, even teenager who maybe becomes pregnant, will be treated with dignity, love, and respect. And we will, we will cherish her and her child so that she doesn't have to fear being ostracized or rejected by her community. Number two, if you have had an abortion or if 
you have helped procure an abortion as a husband or boyfriend, please go to confession. I have met so many women in confession who held on to this for years and years and years. The Lord Jesus has not turned his back on you at all and greatly desires to forgive you. His compassion, his love is there. And I guarantee that that is what you will receive in confession. Number three, we have a great tradition here at St. Thomas More of supporting a lot of causes. But I noticed that we don't tend to support a lot of pro-life causes. And that needs to change. We can't merely declare something wrong and not try to help women who are in need. And there are many organizations we can assist, organizations that help women when they, they have no place to go and they're pregnant and they need health care and they need shelter. We can support these organizations. There are organizations that, that help women get health care, that help show them their, their unborn baby through ultrasound so that they can humanize that experience, and very often this changes their mind about what they're considering doing. We can become an agent of change in our society. We, we maybe can't change the whole thing, but we can change it here. And we can make sure that every child is protected, every child is treated with dignity, and every child is loved. And lastly, do not be ashamed to be pro-life. Do not be afraid of being pro-life. Do not be afraid to speak for the billions of voices of, of children who never had a chance to speak. Never apologize for being Catholic. Never apologize for the truth and never apologize for seeking to bring, out a good, bring about a good and just and holy society. Never apologize. Be courageous.